Greetings, scholars, and welcome to Following the Gong, a podcast of the Shire Honors College at Penn State. Following the Gong takes you inside conversations with our scholar alumni to hear their stories so you can gain career and life advice and expand your professional network. You can hear the true breadth of how scholar alumni have gone on to shape the world after they ran the gong and graduated with honors, and learn from their experiences so you can use their insights in your own journey. This show is proudly sponsored by the Scholar Alumni Society, a constituent group of the Penn State Alumni Association. I'm your host, Sean Goheen, class of 2011 and college staff member. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Tina Flint Hennessy, class of 1993, is an assistant vice president for university development at Penn State, where she oversees alumni relations and development work at 14 of the university's colleges, campuses, and other units, including the Shire Honors College. Before returning to her alma mater in 2009, Tina worked first as a newspaper reporter and editor for 10 years, transitioning to higher education fundraising, holding positions at Arcata University and Montgomery County Community College, both in suburban Philadelphia. Tina earned her BA in journalism with honors in 1993. She earned her MBA from Arcadia University in 2007. She's happy to discuss fundraising or her beekeeping hobby, and feel free to connect with her on LinkedIn. In our conversation, Tina provides insight through her story on topics like choosing to start at a Commonwealth campus close to home, the value of starting in the college as a second or third year student at Penn State, using your involvement in campus organizations as professional preparation, leveraging your thesis and job interviews, identifying what you are good at that can be a transferable skill like writing. She also talks about recognizing the signs when you need to make a career change or industry change. Tina goes on to talk about what major gift officers are and what they do for organizations like Penn State, saying no to focus on honing your skills and learning all parts of a work unit, balancing leadership and technical responsibilities as you move up in an organization, tackling the challenge of being a leader of disparate teams, fostering environments for leadership to grow without formal titles, how an MBA is helpful working in a nonprofit and higher education setting, how and why scholars could get into fundraising and university advancement work, and approaching mentorship as a mentor and as a mentee. And with that, we'll get into Tina's story following the gong. Tina, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. And just a little bit up front for our listeners, uh, Tina is in what you might use in common terms, my boss's boss. So just full disclosure there, but I'm super excited to have you on the show as one of our scholar alumni. So welcome, uh, Tina. If we could just kick off with just telling us a little bit about your current role here at Penn State. Sure. Thanks, Sean. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate um, the invitation. So I am the assistant vice president for university development. Um, I'm one of three individuals in these roles. And in, uh, for my part, I oversee 14 of our fundraising and alumni relations offices. So those 14 offices are embedded in our colleges, our campuses, and what we call our special mission units, like uh, the university libraries. Um, and so Shire Honors College, uh, in addition to being one of my alma maters, is also um, one of my units that I oversee. And we are very proud to be a part of what we affectionately call Team Tina in, in the <laughs> cohort, along with some other great colleges and campuses, as well as you said, the university libraries. So I want to start at the very beginning, and I know you kind of have a unique 
uh, origin story of how you came to pick Penn State as your alma mater, as you said. So could you tell us how you came to pick the university? When it was time to choose a college, I didn't have a lot of experience and I didn't have a lot of role models, quite honestly. Um, And my father had attended Penn State, what was then Penn State Ogontz, and is now Penn State Abington, for just a couple semesters, uh, he always said he, he quote, deed out. He got straight D's. He knew that they would draft him, so he enlisted and, and ended up in Vietnam. Um, and he ultimately got a, a degree in night school, but it wasn't a traditional path. And that was part of why, as a family, we just didn't really understand the process. And so I, I applied to some regional schools um, with Penn State being one of them. And, and Penn State, of course, as anyone from Pennsylvania knows, is a big name and, and is very exciting. Um, and I was accepted uh, to University Park. Um, and, and I still remember that an alum called me on the phone to say, do you have any questions? You know, we're excited to welcome you to University Park. And I said, I have one question I don't know how to change my acceptance to my local campus, right? Because I just I just didn't know how you went about going to college. So that kicked off my college career um, where I was a commuter student at what is now Penn State Abington. Had a great experience, um, you know, worked while I was while I was doing that. And after three semesters, uh, I had to really had to transfer to University Park. I'm not sure I would have otherwise, but it's one of the best things that happened to me, really. Um, was transformative for me as a person to go away to college and have that experience. And as part of that transition uh, in your um, what we used to refer to as your sophomore year, you joined the University Scholars Program. Can you tell us about the impact that that had on your experience, both at what we now call Abington and at University Park? Yeah, my uh, I remember my dad saying you got invited to this, you know, he opened the mail and you got invited to do this thing. And um, and so I said, yes, I, I almost said no to the invitation. I didn't really understand what it was. It sounded kind of like a lot of work. Um, but I said, sure, I'll do it. And I, I'm really glad I did. It um, funneled me into honors courses because I, I had taken an honors course or two at Abington before being um, invited and accepted into what was then the scholars program. Uh, but part of being in the program necessitated that you continue to take honors courses. And at University Park, they were incredibly small classes uh, where you got to have really good in-depth conversations with your peers. Um, they were they were really intellectually stimulating classes. Um, and they were all of them. I mean, I remember so many of them uh, very clearly. Um, and some of them would be add-ons to other. So I had a really large class in the forum that was a theater course, um, but we had not our section that brought, you know, six or eight of us together in a conference room once a week to talk about what we were doing in that class. Um, that was really special. And then on top of that, the, the act of choosing and writing a thesis and working closely with an advisor, um, was you know very unique uh, among all the people I was friends with in college, um, and and forced me to be a better student and and to be more focused on what I was doing. And obviously, you have gone on to become a leader in the division of development alumni relations in the advancement field. But this is not something that you can really major in in terms of a career path. So, can you tell us about your actual major that you pursued? 
and the uh, co-curricular opportunities related to that that you pursued? Sure. So I majored in journalism and I was part of, at, at Penn State, Abington, Ogans, I was the editor of the Ogans Campus News. So it was kind of defunct when I got there. Um, and it was fun to pull together a group of people to start to, you know, reimagine a campus newspaper that we put out once a month. Um, I became very um, close with my with the advisor for the newspaper, who also taught one of my honors classes. Um, and so he's somebody who I kept in touch with for for years and years um, until he retired. And uh, and we we um, did something kind of from scratch. And I remember our office so clearly. I visited that campus not too long ago, and and walking to that office really meant a lot to me. Um, and then when I transferred to University Park, I was part of the Daily Collegian staff. Uh, that is an exceptional opportunity for students, um, not just journalism students by any stretch. Any student has that interest in, in writing for a newspaper will have a tremendous experience at the Collegian. Um, so I did that as well. There were other opportunities for, for me as an honors student. Um, uh, one that I remember in um, the College of Communications well, it wasn't a college then, but it is now. Uh, we went to Washington, D.C. for a day and we got to sit um, and listen to the Supreme Court. And then we had a private meeting with uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, which was just amazing experience. I'll, I'll never forget it. Wow. I can't even imagine having a, a one-on-one meeting with any Supreme Court justice, let alone one who served on the court as long as he did. Um, that is tremendous. Um, so you you mentioned your time with the newspapers, and I think that's a particular mark of Schreier Scholars is being able to help lead these efforts. And I think, you know, particularly at University Park, you hear there's not a club, create it. But that's a particularly great opportunity at our Commonwealth campuses is to step up and help, you know, in your case, you resurrected something that had been defunct. So certainly no matter what campus you're at or start at, there are opportunities abounding. And as you mentioned, one of those great opportunities was writing your thesis. Do you remember what you wrote about and why you picked that topic? Sure. Yeah, I do. I, um, I really wanted to go to law school. I had been a legal secretary through high school and college and summers, and that was just what I thought I wanted to do. And so when I took a communications law class, I asked that professor um, if she had any thoughts about what I should do for my thesis. And she suggested I write a legal brief about a case. Um, It was Milkovich v. Lorraine Journal. It had been recently decided by the Supreme Court. um, And it was about whether or not newspapers could be sued for libel based on opinion pieces. Um, I'm going to admit that I don't 100% remember where this, I think the Supreme Court came down um, against the newspaper in that um, ruling, which is why she wanted me to to pursue it. And I remember sitting in the tea library, um, you know, Friday, Saturday nights, everybody's out having fun. And I'm reading legal briefs and really trying to figure out how to make sense of this. It was work I wouldn't have done for any other reason. Um, and it's something I talked about. I remember going to job interviews and talking about that because as a, as a budding journalist, a, a, somebody who wanted to work at newspapers, 
being able to talk about the work I did on a legal case that was really important in the industry um, was interesting to people. And so I was able to talk about that really in depth. um, And that was uh, pretty powerful. Obviously, law and journalism are both career paths where you need to have really really great writing skills. And obviously, you could talk about your thesis experience in those and other professions. But Tina, you mentioned you wanted to go to law school, but you just also mentioned that you were looking for jobs in the journalism industry. So how did you end up settling on the career path that you went down as opposed to going to law school? So, uh, you know, I'm going to again say I um, as somebody who didn't have a lot of mentors in a professional way, um, I really didn't, I couldn't envision a path that would take me to post baccalaureate. Um, you know, and that's, I just, I couldn't afford it. I couldn't, and I didn't understand about, um, the ways that you got funding. So I, um, was prepared to apply and ultimately just, you know, didn't, I put that on hold. I continued to think about it for years. Um, and, I got the job in newspapers. I did that. I worked in that space for 10 years at the um, end of that time before I left. So it was probably about eight years in. I took a fellowship to work in Washington, D.C. And uh, I worked for um, a congressman there and and did some in-depth work with the American Political Science Association. That that program was really for journalists. um, And that helped remind me that I, you know, maybe didn't want to go to law school, but that I really loved, um, you know, doing work that was important to me um, and how newspapers had um, intersected with that, the work in Congress intersected with that. Uh, And a couple years later, uh, it was time to think about a career change. And I looked at higher education and had an opportunity to move into a role in development and alumni relations at a small um, liberal arts college near where I was living at the time. And that was, that was a great move for me. Uh, I found, I found a real passion in development work and I was also then able to pursue graduate work. uh, So I got my MBA instead of a law degree. Um, And that was a good degree to get. I really liked it. it. It fit well with, my interest by the time I got there. So there's a lot to unpack there. And I want to take a step back into your your journalism career for a minute. I know you were both a reporter, correct, and an editor along the way. So what skills have you been able to take from your journalism days into your advancement? Because I think, I don't know the exact statistic, but people don't stick in one career anymore. Our scholars are going to go on and change careers and industries even. So transferable skills are crucial for lifetime success. So what were you able to take from career number one into career number two? I I think that's a great point. Um, So for me, the ability to write well and succinctly was something that has carried me through this career change. It helped me when I was actually working in Congress, uh, especially the piece about being able to write quickly, clearly, and briefly. Um, that's a skill that's rare, but that people see the journalists bring. So I heard that as soon as I got into my fellowship, people said, we love the journalists because they can write briefing papers that are one sheet, right? And, and 
most people can't do that. But but throughout my career, um, I have been I've heard over and over that the my ability to write well is recognized and and differentiates me. So that's something um, I think scholars get too. That the act of writing a thesis. Um, Going in depth with your writing in a way that not every student does uh, helps hone that as well. Um, and then really listening to people, asking questions, understanding that you sit and listen. Um, that is something that has helped me in, in this profession in particular. A lot of our work is about one-on-one relationship building. And really, people want to be asked good questions. You're doing a great job. This is the type of thing that you're doing right now. People want to be asked good questions and they want this space to talk about it. Um, and, and I come into this profession knowing that there's great value in, in being quiet and listening and, um, and being able to talk to people and remember what they say. Absolutely. And that is something I want to ask about in a little bit is about the relational roles that, um, we have in this profession. But you mentioned you were in journalism for about eight or so years, 10 years. And I imagine that there was a lot of soul searching that you did as you were considering giving up something that had been a part of your life for presumably, if you count your your Penn State days, 12, 15 years. What were the signs that were maybe telling you it's time to make a change? And how did you, you know, think about that? Perhaps, you know, was there family consideration? Walk us through you know, and briefly your mindset and decision-making process in making that major career move. So, yes, I realized in the 1990s, this is would have been, um, I guess it would have been early 2000s at this point, 2001, um, 2002. Newspaper industry was in great decline. Um I was realizing that there was really nowhere for me to go. I had been promoted in the organization I worked for, which was a regional newspaper chain. Um, I came back from the fellowship and I soon was moved into the executive editor and director of production roles. Um, that was really the, the top of that company for me. Um, and there were, you know, I was relatively young. I was leading a large team and there was nowhere for me to go. And I was feeling like I wanted to accomplish more. I knew that. The hardest part of that was the transition out. Um, because I think sometimes we get stuck and we get limited by our own expectations. Uh, often I, I have opportunities to talk to young people who might be going through a similar conversation with themselves. And in my mind, that conversation is about opportunity. And people are afraid to take us what they perceive as a step backwards for opportunity. And my advice is always that um, sometimes you have to do that. You need to step sideways or even back in order to leap forward. And that was my experience. I was at the very top of this um, company and I really took a big step backwards in taking um a role as a major gift officer at this um, institution in, in suburban Philadelphia. Uh, but it was a, it was a decision I made for an opportunity for myself. I was recently married and we were just about to start a family. And, and while I was there, we did start our family. And 
making that move was the right decision. Journalism was not the place I wanted to be at that point in my life. Uh, it was hard. I, I missed kind of the creative fun of the journalism space. People who've worked there can will talk about there's lots of crazy stories, um, you know, and you really are in the thick of things and that can be exciting, but it can also be exhausting. And it's, um, you know, I, I think it's pretty natural for people at some point to think it's time for me to move on to something else. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. I think knowing that our students probably have those same thoughts around majors and changing majors or may have these around careers, I think this is very helpful. Now, you mentioned a term that we know very well, which is major gift officer. Can you tell the listener a little bit more about what exactly a major gift officer is? So our major gift officers are individuals who work in our alumni relations and development offices, and their role is to engage with typically alumni, sometimes others, but but for this purpose, we'll talk about alumni. Alumni of the institution um, meet with them usually one-on-one. That, that's a big part of that process. Talk to them about their interests and their experience and ultimately be thinking about, does this person that I'm talking to want to make a gift, a philanthropic gift to this institution um, and do they have the ability to do that? Do they want to do it? And, and can I help them do that? Uh, ultimately, you do ask for money. That's the thing that most people say. I could never ask for money. Um, and I think you'd be surprised at what you can do. You know, if you have the tools and the skill and somebody to help you understand it, sitting down with somebody and helping them make the gift they want to make is a really wonderful and rewarding thing to do. We don't ever um, take gifts from individuals that they don't want to give us and that don't bring them joy. And so it's really, I feel much more like our major gift officers are both facilitators for individuals who want to make gifts. And they're also advocates for those people. Uh, They advocate for them at the institution to help them meet their goals and their interests making sure that their scholarship is awarded to the type of student they want to help, for example. Um, That's really important work, and and it helps our students. It helps our institutions. Um, And and usually the thing that makes our work so rewarding is that the person who's made the gift, the person we call the donor, thanks us. They're really pleased that we were able to help them do what they ultimately really wanted to do anyway. Working with some of these uh, MGOs, and this is a term you'll see in a lot of nonprofit spaces as well, not just at Penn State or in higher education. Um, I liken them as well to kind of bridge builders between the institution and the donors, right? Helping them. But particularly, there's almost an educational aspect to it. I think a lot of donors, from what I've seen, tend to be surprised at the creativity that can be involved in the ways that you can support, you know, perhaps you're making a gift of a painting or software or even a horse can be a gift in some cases um, for our colleagues over in the College of Agricultural Sciences. Um, And so the gift officers help folks understand this. And like you said, they're making a difference for our students, for our faculty, for our graduate students, but particularly in the Honors College for our undergraduate scholars um, of of note. 
And so you've advanced to a senior leadership role pretty quickly um, in your time at Penn State. Can you kind of walk us through your career progression within um, DDAR, as we call it, uh, from your starting point now to being um, in the leadership team for the division as an assistant vice president? Yeah, and, and I like that term, bridge builder. I'll, I'll hold on to that one, too. So thank you for that. Um, so I came to Penn State. Penn State actually found me as somebody working in development um, in suburban Philadelphia and one of their alums. And so uh, they had a newly formed office that was meant to recruit people into these NGO roles um, because at the time, and I think still this is the case, there are not enough qualified people to fill the openings nationally for major gift officers. So Penn State started a, an office to help recruit for that, and, and they found me. I, I had updated my information in the database. It's a cute all of our future alums that um, keep that information updated. Because they were able to send me an email and say, we have an opening. We, we'd like for you to look at it. After you know many months of, of that process, uh, finding the right fit at Penn State and deciding that my husband and my now two young children wanted to make a move, to state college, um, I settled in the College of Engineering here as a as a major gift officer. And one of the decisions I made personally at that time, having managed and led big teams uh, for a while, was that I I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to learn how to do fundraising at a Big Ten institution, and and learn to do it really well without any distractions. So I made a conscious decision to put my head down, um, to not raise my hand for any opportunities, no matter what, and, and to get really good at this, this work for Penn State. So I was in the College of Engineering for four years, um, and you know, ultimately I feel like I was very successful there. Uh, and once it was time for me to, to move on, I decided, again, to take a sideways step uh, to some extent, I went into what is called our Office of Gift Planning. There was an opening there. Um, this is interesting because it marries both my interest in and my experience with uh, the legal profession and with fundraising. Because our, our Office of Gift Planning are individuals, many of whom are actually attorneys. They have law degrees. And their role is to help us help the donors make the best decisions they can make about how to make their gift. Uh, sometimes that might be they want to leave um, a bequest in their will or their estate plan that says, when I die, Penn State will get some money for a scholarship. Sometimes it's just figuring out how to structure a gift in the most tax advantageous way. There, there are lots of rules in that space, and we want to help people make the best decisions they can. So I did that for a year. I really enjoyed it. Um, I likely would have stayed a little longer, um, but by that point, I think I was ready for leadership and the institution recognized I was ready for leadership. So a position came open to lead the team in the College of the Liberal Arts, um, and I decided to step into that role, lead one of the, the larger and more complex teams here at the institution, um, that was a, a wonderful experience. Uh, I enjoyed working with that team very much. We raised a lot of money and, and kicked off this current campaign together. Um, and then the opportunity opened to take um, a vertical promotion. So I kept the college as part of my portfolio, but to add 
all those other units into my portfolio um, and and lead centrally, manage those units um, and help them through this campaign. So I, I took that opportunity after a few years. So I've been here um, going on, I guess, 12 and a half years, if I'm counting correctly. Um, and I've had, I've been in four different offices. I think I've had five different titles, maybe. Uh, I'm proud of that. It makes me a, a very, I think, um, well-rounded member of our division. I can speak to both unit-based work and central work. Um, I know what it's like to work in a, a central unit, what we sometimes refer to as central support units, units that um, are supporting the teams in the colleges, like the Office of Gift Planning. So I understand that work very much. And then I also understand what it's like to be in, in a college like you are, Sean, and, and, um, and know that you work for both uh, the Division of Development and Alumni Relations, but you also very directly work with and for and support an academic leader like your dean. And that's important work. So very complex work that we do. Can you speak a little bit to, and I know you're going to say every day is different, but what is a day in the life of your job really like? One of the challenges as you, um, I think, advance in leadership is that much of your time is spent, and I'm sure everybody's heard this in meetings, right? What what does that mean? So a big part of my day is spent in one-on-one meetings with my direct reports. I meet with them once a month. There are 14 of them. We try and, and when I say we, it's myself and my assistant who manages my calendar and is, is really um, an important part of not, I don't want to say my personal success, but I, uh, she and I work together for the success of what I see as, you know, my office, me and her, and how, how are we successful together? So we try very hard to keep my one-on-ones to one week a month. Um, so it all happens in one week. That's a busy week. Um, so a day might have a, a lot of one-on-ones, maybe two or three. Um, it also will have meetings centrally. Um, and and there'll be hopefully an, on a good day, there's a block of maybe three hours that is set aside for me to do work. Um, in reality, that time gets eaten up even when it's on my calendar with, you know, I need 15 minutes of your time. Can we talk today type of meeting? So I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, I get up at 5 a.m. every day. I start my day with um, email and coffee and and take care of anything that I couldn't get to the day before um, and anything that might feel like an emergency that morning. I usually then go for a run. Um, and uh, so that's, that's where a lot of that um, work happens. Get through all those meetings during the day that I've described, um, have some somewhat off conversations. Um, and then usually I, I leave the office at about six. Uh, another piece of my day that I have to find time for and that is really important, I do continue to fundraise for the institution. And that's really an important part of my role. Um, and so carving out the time for that. And again, this is a leadership puzzle and challenge that, that every, um, everybody as they move into leadership will face, which is you tend to be promoted because of your success as, as a technical expert in something. And nobody wants you to give that thing up necessarily. Um, but it, 
it becomes the thing that you have less and less time for as you become a leader. And so uh, balancing that is part of the job, figuring it out is part of the job. So I spend time um, on that every day. Um, and, and I spend a lot of time thinking about how to develop the next leaders in our division, how to support them, uh, how to how to help them be successful. And I'd also like to throw out that you are probably working on your weekly email that you send out to all of your teams, giving them a full rundown every Friday of what is going on and making sure that we are staying communicative as a cohort of units. Um, and to that point, um, I'm curious. So you manage 14 teams. So how, you know, you're not just managing 14 directors, but you're managing 14 teams. So how, how do you manage a portfolio that broad, especially when there's, you know, small Commonwealth campuses, large colleges that you park, the libraries, and this real diverse portfolio? How do you approach that as a leader? So when I, when I took this role, one of the things I did was I went to my volunteers. So I was still in the College of Liberal Arts when I was being promoted into this role. And I was very close to our volunteers. We were at a baseball game in a box, you know, pre-COVID, many, many years pre-COVID. And I, I went to one of them in particular, I remember, and said, what I really care about is leading a team. Um, I think... Uh, uh, what had previously been the model for people in this position had been that we had individual directors who reported to us, but they had nothing in common other than that they reported to us. And so you met with them individually and you just went about your business. And, and I knew that I liked to lead teams. And, and that implies that there's a common purpose, that we're working together to get to a common goal um, and that we're supporting each other and helping each other. We're not just looking at a goal off in the distance and, and individually running after it. We're a team. We're trying to get there together. So I asked this volunteer, um, what did he think I could do to create a team out of these disparate directors who were going to report to me? And he gave me some good advice about finding tasks that they could work on together uh, identifying some senior leaders among them and, and pulling them together. So I took that advice. I took some other um, best practice that I knew existed. And, and I also asked the people I was going to manage, what did they think was important for me to do? So we started pretty quickly with that group of directors having regular meetings. And this included um, getting on conference calls once a month because some of my directors did not work here. Originally that group was only nine. So I had two directors in that group who did not work at university park. So we would do conference calls once a month. And then on the other month we would get together in person for anywhere from two to three hours um, where we would usually have lunch and unpack some big topics. I might send readings ahead of time. We might have some big, big things to talk about. And we would really spend that time talking about ideas and deciding how we were going to continue to move this idea of our cohort forward. Um, at some point during that period, I started this weekly email. Uh, it was an idea I took from a, a colleague at UNC and 
Um, it was a great idea. I'm sure, I'm sure emails look nothing alike because they're all about us and our personalities and how we show up. But just the idea that you communicate to your team in writing once a week and, and capture the week. So I started that. I think that is about building this team culture as well. And, and the purpose of the email. So I, I was building this culture with the directors, but I realized I wanted a culture that included the whole teams, as, as you point out. And so the email was the way to get to everybody and to um, make everybody feel like they were on one team. I focus on good news. Um, I want to highlight the work that our teams are doing that really is, is notable and, and worth uh, noting. We are all always looking at the goal of, of dollars raised as a division, as an institution. So I include all gifts to our units in that email. But one of the decisions I made was to include with everybody's name, their title and the unit they work for, kind of in parentheses after their name. Um, and that was really meant to, to start to have individuals recognize who their colleagues were by name really start to understand that. So kick that off. Uh, it, it was hard initially to find enough content. Um, over time, that has not really been an issue. It, it has gotten easier and easier over time to really um, uh, have plenty for that email every week. What happened organically from that, though, is those team members started saying to me, we want to meet in person. We, we see all these names. I hear about all this great work that my colleagues are doing, but I want to meet them. How can we do this? So that's where Karen, again, uh, working with me as closely as she does, Karen and I scheduled what we called our, our all cohort meeting. It was um, the only one we've ever had in person. We have another one planned uh, for this December um, because it was it happened in the fall of 2019. So we would have had a second one in the spring of 2020, uh, pre, but the pandemic uh, stop that from happening. So we, we had this big meeting um, and we found space in the university libraries. Everybody came. I think we maybe had two people from our whole team that couldn't attend. And we created activities that were team building in nature. Um, and we put people together in groups by what they did in their units. So we wanted all of the alumni relations team members to sit together and get to know each other and all of the ad administrative support team members, the same, same with the major gift officers and the directors. And it worked really well. And when we went into remote work, the first thing that happened was that our administrative team, who during that all cohort meeting were team purple, we all had a color, started meeting every week on Zoom and they called it the purple team meetings. And I hear about those meetings from all reaches of this institution and how much they have impacted that group, held them together, supported them through remote work. And, and they supported each other. There's no, no one else in that room. I don't want to say there's no leader there because they're, they're leaders for making it happen. Um, but no organizational leader, nobody with that title stepped in to say, hey, do this. They did it on their own, and it's been tremendously successful. Other cohorts have since kind of modeled meetings after that. Um, so those are the ways I think we really built that idea of team. I, how do I manage? I mean, I, um, 
I look at data all the time. I think anyone who, who is part of my cohort knows that I am constantly looking at the data. I can usually tell you where you, how your unit's doing. Is your college going to make goal? What's your percent? I usually have that somewhere in my head. Um, and I think it's a great way to both um, inspire a little bit of uh, positive competitiveness among our units um, and also help us help each other. So, you know, we've had five of our units have already hit goal in our campaign. We have another basically the rest of this fiscal year through to June 30 um, in this campaign. But those units are prepared to help their colleagues get to their goals. Um, and I, I take a lot of pride in that part of, of what our cohort has created. Absolutely. And as a one of the hundred plus folks who are in Team Tina, um, certainly we have latched on to on all of these things. And, you know, I'm always like, Oh, there are going to be pictures of the bees this week in the weekly email. And we can talk about that in a little bit, <laughs> but I want to go back. You, you were talking about, you kind of pulled from some best practices, putting this email together and much earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that you went and got an MBA and obviously we are a nonprofit institution. So how do you find that degree in particular to be helpful in your uh, current role? When I was um, hired in the College of Engineering, the director there actually was pleased that I had an MBA because so many of their alumni went on to business degrees. Uh, I, in particular, supported industrial engineering, which is is a degree that that went into industry and, and business. So, to some extent, it helped me, ha- you know, have a common language with some of my prospects and to understand some of the concept that they're talking about. Bigger than that, though, I think um, the MBA helps me understand um, teams. We we studied. Uh, you know, Harvard business case studies around you know, what makes a good leader, um, how, how to manage teams. It helps me understand this giant institution because in some ways, although we're nonprofit, the idea that we have these separate colleges is much like a business unit in a large company. And I understand that very much. I understand those funding models. Um, it helps me think about them in ways that make sense uh, and and makes me um, look at the decisions our leaders make very positively. I, mean, I think our leadership is exceptional, um, but I also have a sense of, of why that's important. So I, you know, the other thing, and I am comfortable talking about this with, with individuals too, education is positive kind of just for education's sake, right? Having a master's degree and having read things and studied um, we went on two international trips as part of my MBA and spent a week in other countries learning about their economic models and their businesses, um, their business industry. It makes me somebody who can talk about those things with anybody. Um, and I think, you know, it, the same is true for our undergraduate degrees. Many of our students and our young alumni will not necessarily work in a space that lines up directly with the degree they get. But the degree is important just because it, it makes us smarter, you know, well-rounded, intelligent people who can speak about what's happening 
in the world, what's happening in current events, um, in ways that helps us connect with other people. It is about connection. Um, so, you know, I wanted a master's degree because I, I really did want a master's degree. The MBA interested me. And probably those two things were more important than whether or not it was going to directly benefit me professionally. If I hadn't been interested in it, I may not have done as well. And earlier, you mentioned that when you were recruited to Penn State um, for your initial major gift officer role, that there's kind of a glut of positions and not enough staff to fill them just in the industry. Beyond that, just knowing that there are lots of jobs available in this space, why should a student consider a career in philanthropy and particularly in university advancement? I think we can we can pause before we even go beyond that. Uh, the opportunity is exceptional. And for students who are looking for ways to get into a career that has a lot of opportunity for advancement, um, working in higher education, fundraising, and honestly, fundraising anywhere, um, holds that promise. It's not just our fundraising. It's, it's the whole, as, as Sean said, the whole advancement operation, the operation of a nonprofit and, and in higher education that kind of looks out at the world and engages people with our institutions um, on that border between the two. So there's, there's lots of opportunity, and I, I think um, that alone should be interesting to some of our um, people who are considering, young people who are considering what to do after they graduate. In addition, though, it is fulfilling work, uh, working closely with people who care about or care about Penn State. So I'll speak specifically about Penn State. We get to work really closely with Penn State alums who have really warm memories of their time here and want to use that positive emotion in a way that benefits our institution and our students. Um, and much of that is about fundraising, but not all of it. We need alumni who are going to mentor our students. Now, in a lot of our spaces, we need a really vibrant um, alumni base to help us get internship and co-op opportunities for students. That matters a lot. Um, and so th that engagement really does have positive impact. We're doing work that positively impacts the institution that we love, our students who need it and, and you know, are going to be launched into the world in a better way if we can support them. Because of the work that we do, they'll be launched in a better way. That feels great. I, I take a lot of pride in that. Um, so I think for somebody thinking about a career that, that is meaningful, um, it's different all the time. It, you know, there's lots of events. There's lots of... Um, people to meet, if you are going to be a frontline fundraiser, even some of our alumni relations team members, you're going to travel a lot. Uh, that was appealing to me, honestly, when I started doing this work. Um, and I know it's appealing to some of our other team members as well. Um, and if you if that's not what you want, there's lots of work in stewardship. Um, there's lots of other work that we do that uh, is still rewarding in all the same ways. Um, but maybe doesn't have that travel component and that, that other piece. So you mentioned mentorship, and obviously that's the goal of this podcast is mentorship. So how do you approach mentorship, both as a mentor who is successful in your career and two different careers, 
And how also do you still be a mentee at your point in your career? So as I approach mentorship, you know, I, I um, want to help people who I'm working with get to the next level for themselves. Where do they want to get to and how can I help them? So I do look at my mentorship as an opportunity to have conversations where I bring honest stories about my experience to the table to help others move through spaces that may be challenging for them. I'm really comfortable talking about my career and my history um, with people that I'm mentoring in ways that um, hopefully helps connect them to a story that um, they see a path forward for themselves. So I really want to support that. I want to, I want to see things in them that maybe they don't see in themselves and, and help them achieve their goals at that level. Uh, as, as a mentee, I, I am really comfortable. And I think this is a space that um, for my entire career will be true for me. And I'd, I'd suggest other people, you know, do some um, reflection about this and, and try and capture it, which is, I, I want to continue to learn. I want feedback. I want to know how I can be better at what I do. Um, I, you know, my boss, Dave Lee, he, I've worked with him and, and directly for him for many years. Um, I go to him all the time with questions, you know, hard questions, things that I can't quite figure out. And I want, I genuinely want his guidance on that. Um, and there are others. I went through a leadership program a few years ago for, um, you know, advancement professionals in the large public institutions in the country. And somebody I met through that program, he and I struck up a, a regular conversation by Zoom during the pandemic. And um, I felt like he was able to mentor me around how do I help my staff through this period of time. And, um, you know, he with somebody with not a lot of fundraising experience. Ultimately, he's just taken a position as a vice president. And so I was able to give him some advice in, in that space as well. So we felt like we were both um, helping each other, which is always nice. Um, but I I don't feel that I am done being mentored. I know that I, I can use lots of um, insight. I'm at an age where, where the people who first mentored me, some of them have, have passed. Um, some of them are retiring and uh, and that causes a lot of reflection too. What do I want my um, my legacy to be as, as somebody who helped others achieve their goals professionally and, and sometimes personally as well? Is there any suggestions that you would have for a student as they seek out mentors to get their career started? You know, be creative. Think about where do you want to be, maybe, and and who can help you talk through that process. Your mentor is not necessarily the person who's going to get you there. And I'm not sure you should pick a mentor because you think they can get you a job. I don't know that that will necessarily uh, bring you exactly what you want. You want somebody who's going to be able to talk to you about the things that are important to you and help you make decisions that are difficult and challenging. Um, one of my first mentors at Penn State, uh, Jean Songer, she was an AVP at the time, and I was an MGO in, in engineering. Um, Jean's still an AVP, and now we're colleagues, and we're, and we're good friends. And at the time, somebody asked me, did I want to mentor, and who would I want it to be? And Jean was 
the only woman I saw at that level um, at the time. And she was in the central organization. So that was um, different too. And I asked if she would mentor me and she said yes. And, and so although it didn't directly affect my job um, because Jean was never a fundraiser and many steps after that here at Penn State, you know, had nothing to do with whether or not um, Jean could make the decision about promoting me. You know, that was never the case. But it was a great opportunity for me to learn from her experience and to understand this organization better. Um, and it seemed like a kind of a non-traditional decision, but it was the right one. There was a formal mentorship, informal mentorships. Every uh, every supervisor I've had, um, a lot of my academic leaders, they're so uh, smart. They lead giant teams, and I really enjoy talking to them about what they do and, and hearing their insights and, and managing and leading teams. So, yeah, I, I think um, – being open to mentorship is is important and is important for your entire career. Absolutely. And I hope that you take these pieces of advice seriously um, as you listen to this podcast, as you seek out other opportunities, both in the Honors College and at your home college or campus here at Penn State. Obviously, mentors are people. And Tina, I'd love to know if there's anybody from your scholar days or anybody that you work with now that you would like to give a quick shout out to here at the tail end of our conversation. Wow. Okay. Who, who would I want to give a shout out to? Obviously my team. I, I can't say enough about my team and how much they inspire me. And um, they're the reason I do what I do. I'm proud of the work we've done, especially during the pandemic and I'm proud of our success. Uh, I am moved all the time by the work we do to support students. So um, that's really important. Uh, there were lots of professors uh, that I remember from my days. One um, who is retired now, uh, he goes by R. Thomas Burner, Tom Burner, or as those of us who went through the journalism program called him, just Burner. Um, he's still in this region, and I, uh, I think of him often as somebody who really had an impact on my um, my career as a student. Um, and you know, I think. Um, People like you, Sean, people who are doing good work for our students. That's, that's really important. It's what we need to be doing. So I give you a big shout out for doing this podcast and, and for um, giving me a, an opportunity to talk like this. It's, it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I enjoy, um, I enjoy anything I can do to support our students. And I appreciate that you've made space for that. I'm glad that you were able to join me on it. Um, so are there any last pieces of advice that you wanted to share with said students before we wrap up with the last kind of uh, closeout questions? I, I'd like to tell the students that, you know, they, taking risks is good. Um, you know, there are challenges at, at every stage, um, but you, you assess those challenges and you, and you take a, a calculated risk. Sometimes the really hard choice the thing that's making you feel uncomfortable is going to be the best choice. It's going to be the thing that you should say yes to. Um, and I'd encourage them to uh, be conscious of that when they're doing things that might push them beyond their comfort zone. Um, you know, taking a job that maybe is outside their study area or outside the geographic area where they thought they were going to land. Um, but maybe they need to really understand that feeling 
and decide if that's something that maybe they should be um, looking at. And and when it comes to mentors, um, you know, I think some students have a lot of natural mentors, um, and those individuals who tell them what it's like to be a professional, uh, you know, what does it look like to get dressed for a job interview and, and all of that. But many of our students don't have those natural mentors. Um, don't be ashamed of the fact that you don't have them and you don't know the answers to those questions and find somebody to ask. That's what mentoring is all about. That's the type of thing that honestly I enjoy doing more than anything in a, in a mentoring relationship is helping people answer the questions that they um they might be afraid to ask. And so don't be afraid of that. Find somebody to help you do with that. And, and you'll be surprised. Nobody, um, nobody is going to uh, be unhappy that you've asked them that question. They're going to be excited to help you with that. That is really, really good advice, especially if you identify as a first-generation student or maybe you don't even know that you identify as a first-generation student. Tina, if they want to connect with you, to have these conversations, what's the best way to reach out to you? They can definitely reach me on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me as Tina Hennessy, Tina Flint Hennessy. My Flint is my maiden name, and it kind of has become my default middle name. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to to connect there. Uh, you know, I welcome um, an email if somebody wanted to send me one. My email is Tina T I N A at psu.edu. So it's pretty simple, and I'm always open to um, allowing individuals to do that as well. And as is tradition on the show, our last question is, if you were a flavor of Berkey Creamery ice cream, which would you be? And most importantly, as a scholar alumna, why that flavor? All right. Well, so I would have to be WPSU Coffee Break. There is no better ice cream in the world uh, to bring together coffee, which is one of my favorite things, um, with little bits of chocolate in an ice cream that at the Berkey Creamery is, you know, giant, too much, uh, but so delicious. Um, I just, I can't think of a better, I know, I know that's not scholarship, um, but it is my favorite and I, I love it. I have not been keeping track, but WPSU Coffee Break is a very popular response among our alumni. I think it might have something to do with those late nights writing the thesis and the coffee element, but always a great choice. Um, Tina, thank you so much for joining me today and offering really, really great advice for our students, for our young alumni who are listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. I really, really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you, scholars, for listening and learning with us today. We hope you will take something with you that will contribute to how you shape the world. This show proudly supports the Schreier Honors College Emergency Fund, benefiting scholars experiencing unexpected financial hardship. You can make a difference at raise.psu.edu forward slash Schreier. Please be sure to hit the relevant subscribe, like, or follow button on whichever platform you are engaging with us on today. You can follow the college on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on news, events, and deadlines. If you have questions about the show or are a Scholar alum who'd like to join us as a guest here on Following the Gone, please connect with me at scholaralumni at psu.edu. Until next time, please stay well, and we are 